right, everyone. We're back once again. This is How to Pakistan, the podcast. I have Musharraf Zaidi with me. We've had a bit of a break for a little while, but we're back and we're looking forward to just having a quick and pretty good discussion on what matters most. And today we thought we'd discuss the whole Qadri phenomena. Had this been just like a year or two ago, it would have been about somebody who was making sure that gamlas don't get damaged, but this is the entire different situation. This is Mumtaz Qadri, the recent hanging, what it means for Pakistan and how people are reacting. So Musharraf, great to uh, see you again. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Thank you, Fasi. Uh, it is good to see you. Um, as I said before we started recording, I'm concerned that it took us an hour to set up this new equipment that we have. I agree. Um, I'm really happy. <laughs> <coughs> and no matter how much time we spend, if you're going to cough like that, we're going to... I've just come out of a really bad chest infection, so on occasion I'm going to do that. And I presume we don't have an editing... Uh, no, something. but every time you're about to cough, what I could do is I could just turn down the volume on your thing. That would be brilliant. Okay, so... Is this your thing? Well, say something. Hello, hello. Yeah. Keep, keep saying something. Yeah, hello, hello. hello. Yeah, so now it's picking. Yeah. We're going to so figure this out. Ideally, in, in a better podcast, these things are discussed in advance. <laughs> but <that's> just, <laughs> <laughs> no, the best moment of the day in the podcast for me was right before sort of, I, said to, I said to Fussy, I said, okay, I'm going to start. Yeah. And Fussy's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then he starts playing with his wire. <laughs> Like so. <laughs> and let's after 40 minutes of like testing and so, I don't know. It's, uh, it's great to be back. Yeah. Uh, we had so many friends and uh, listeners ask us about the, uh, about when we're coming back and what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. So I'm excited that we're, we're going to. We're going to be talking soon. So here's the thing, right? Like, so the moment you say something like we're excited, that's one of the big things is that a lot of people have been saying that on Mumtaz Qadri's execution, the amount of glee that has come in from the progressives and those in the you know, liberal camp has been distasteful. And it's interesting because it's tied into almost another altogether uh, uh, issue, which is you've got the right who's upset at, you know, what's happened and also that you know there's a certain maybe a degree of glee that's going on and then there's also the let's say left of even liberal which is that you know the idea of capital punishment itself and that there should be no celebration around this so it's been very interesting but that's uh, like five people right like i, I don't yeah. know if like five people get to i guess it's a good thing that we have those people because I, I think at some level there's a voice of conscious conscience yes that I was about to say consciousness. Yes. <laughs> but the, I think they serve in many ways as a voice of conscience for, for this country. Oh, absolutely. But they're not politically viable voices. Yeah, I mean, well, they do exert an influence, at least, in the kind really? of... Yeah, 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 they do. Wait, so people who are saying there should be no capital punishment, period. Yeah. What what sort of voice or what influence do they exert in our national discourse? So, so for example, somebody like of that. Wait, level, how many of them can speak Urdu without an accent? A lot, actually. Really? Like, look, look. You've got people like, say, if I remember correctly, Babar Sitar, uh, a number of others, people who concede that you know this is not the right time or maybe uh, the form for this particular discussion, but they do have it, and especially amongst the lawyers who make up uh, disproportionate amount of our commentariat along with sort of like development people I think they do have <laughs> that's classy that is classy right? <laughs> so basically the both of us and everybody that we know yeah <laughs> but, but, but you know so my, my point being is they do have and you know a degree of influence it may not exert itself in Say mass pulling power immediately. So I haven't read that much this week. Unfortunately, I've been, yeah. as you know, like I, I'm just really. Did Babur publicly sort of say that? It, no, no, no. I'm just saying generally his no, no, position. Yeah, his so position no, no, no. on we the death penalty is one. I'm just saying that you know. No, no, no but how many people since the hanging have publicly said that this was wrong? I know that Madiha Tahir did, and I actually have a lot of time for for Madiha uh, because. 
largely because of the sort of courage that uh, her positions, her and uh, Mavish Ahmed, uh, these are the founders of Tanqeed, which is kind of a left of left, um, progressive feminist uh, publication. It's a really good site, actually. Uh, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, any time that I want my blood pressure to spike above 160 over 110, I, I yeah. attempt <laughs> Uh, yeah. to visit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and that's quite often because you know I like to get excited and you know but, but uh, I, I don't think that many people in our mainstream have taken the position that the execution of anybody is a problem and particularly after this execution I think the the more broad sort of mainstream sort of positions have been, one, <clears throat> this is great, and two, this is awful. I mean, do you think that's an oversimplification? No, I, I think that is correct in terms of, um, in terms of, like, say, a general feeling between larger groups of people, but I think also that in terms of people who are trying to look beyond, you know, sort of the immediacy of what's happened, I think for people who say what's great and those who may be against the death penalty, for example, their point has been is that, well, I'm here to celebrate the writ of the state being established once again. So they've got that particular angle going on for it. For those who've been uh, against it, I mean, I think th th that number is very rare from the left, at least, to say, like, you know, like they can't even see anything good in it that, you know, an executions take place. And obviously from the right, the reasoning has been entirely that this is a, it wasn't a murder. It was a, a justification of one person taking the law into their own hands. And I, I also think that it's really interesting that Reuters did a really great piece recently, which was on a group of lawyers in Lahore who take on all blasphemy cases pro bono. And it ended with this really interesting thing where they said, well, if you find a way to amend this law in any way whatsoever, you're basically giving uh, free reign to everyone that you know you can go out and do this. You just have to judge for yourself that whether you know blasphemy's uh, been committed or not, and then go ahead and you know do whatever you think is right or wrong. So, I think I think what you're saying and what I'm saying is that you know maybe I'm giving more importance to a lot of people who have certain opinions, but I think they're also thought formers. They're the ones who are sort of. Uh, gnawing at the edges, trying to, you know, bring in more on this particular issue. And who's I agree bigger, with you. Who's a bigger thought former in this country? Um, Montas Kadri's brother, who leads a mosque in Pindi that's grown by leaps and bounds over the last five years, or some guy who writes an English language column in a big newspaper in Pakistan. Well, I well I agree with you. The answer is obvious that you've got. One, but, but at the same time is that the one who has a smaller pulpit, in some ways the English audience, is also reaching out to a very important and disproportionately popular... Uh, Donor, donors and American and British lawyers. Well, <laughs> well, 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 even the military, even uh, you know, the bureaucrats... You think, the military, you think it reaches the military? I think it does. I think the have days seen, of the you, military being you, as insular as they used to be at one point. Well, they may is not be over. insular, but I mean, have you seen the people that they choose to represent sort of their positions in our public discourse? I mean, well, I mean I, we're not going to take any names because I don't, I don't need to yeah. get it. I, I really don't think there's any value of getting in flaming wars. I, there's yeah. friends of mine, particularly sort of hardcore, really clear headed liberals who are never, uh, never lacking in, in, in being upset with the conciliatory sort of, you know, tone that I like to take, especially in the face of, you know, people who have sticks and maybe worse things in their hands. Um, I believe in self-preservation, and if you're alive, then, then you can live to fight another day. But, yeah. you know, so, but, but really, uh, I mean, really the military? Like, do you think that reasonable arguments do affect the calculus of, of our institutions? Well, uh, you know, the other option is that they're so insular that we're actually witnessing a little degree of evolution right before uh, our eyes. And I don't think that they've been that insular. I think people, it's taken time for people who've been at a different level, who've reached out different experiences. I do believe that 
they may not be influenced directly, but I think a lot of that thought formation over time has had a degree of influence. Because one of the things that I've always remembered, and this is slightly a different segue, which is about 20 years ago, if you spoke of different provinces, it was seen like sedition. This was a very dangerous idea, that this one, if it germinated, could go in unanticipated areas. Today, everyone can speak about it openly. Really? Yeah, yeah. Different provinces, uh, breaking up the Punjab here, there. Uh, I, I don't think it has... Pasi, I, th I, I can introduce you to a lot of Pakhtuns who believe that just asserting that they're Pakhtun is seen as sedition, even in 2016. Well, I, I do feel that there are some, there's a certain avenue of that expression which is definitely seen as sedition. But the idea of the administration uh, being reduced and being made more manageable through more provinces, I don't think it has that kind of animus attached to it that it did have 20 years ago, at least. I mean, well, I, I mean, I'll say this. I think that the openness of the Sharif brothers in particular to reaching beyond the Punjab, and, and we've seen this in the case of Balochistan, I think, in, in a big way. Um, unfortunately, we haven't seen it as, as dramatically in KP. And I think in Sindh, there's a quid pro quo with the PPP that they're not going to try and speak Sindhi for, you know, ad infinitum, essentially. But that the Sharifs have reached out and engaged Balochistan in the way that they have, and that the Sharifs, you know, in the previous government's tenure, the NFC, the National Finance Commission Award, essentially could only have been reached once the Punjab sort of made whatever little compromise it did to accommodate, particularly Balochistan. I think those things have helped. But I think we're a long way away from what I would call the, the, the robustness of federalism that I think we need to have in this country. And that's not a lack of expression of what we might call peripheral identities. I mean, I think even that in itself as a construction is a problem, right? Because, I mean, in a federation, the idea of peripher peripheral identities means that there's a particular unique identity or set of identities yeah. that are privileged above the peripheral ones that are more central. Right? Yeah. So, you know, it's always fascinating to me how you get caught in, in the words that the semantics of this stuff end up mattering a lot more than probably you and I would like them to, right? Yeah. But the point being that I don't think we're comfortable with subnationalities within Pakistan. Let's 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 put it that way. That subnationality in Pakistan is still a big problem. So when you say you know, there's a greater degree of comfort with, you know, the idea of new provinces. I, I would not necessarily agree with you. I don't, I don't think we're anywhere close to actually implementing them, but I do have a distinct feeling that my recollection of how the idea pro or the proposal or even the, you know, sort of subject matter has changed from the hostility that we had 20 years ago to how it's much easier actually formulating this. And I do think the way you're framing it is in one thing that the division would be done in terms of subnationalities, right? That, I think, there's still a degree of fear around that, whether it's South Punjab, you know, whether it's parts of Balochistan, and there's very distinct losses to certain Whether groups, it's Karachi. Whether it's Karachi, right? However, I think, a lot of the framing that's happened recently is much more in terms of, you know, like, uh, these provinces are too big, we need to be more efficient, we need to put it together. And I think, yeah, eventually it would come down to uh, making sort of uh, contiguous provinces that make sense, at least in one way or the other. But, what, I mean, my argument would be this level of discomfort that we continue to have with, for example, just a Pakhtunkhwa. Mm that encompasses Fata, parts of northern Balochistan, uh, all the way to the river, as you guys like yeah. to sort of say. What, what, like, what's, what's the problem? Why not? No, I agree. I don't see a problem. I, however, think that it's based on very long and, and you know this, right? It's a very long um, sort of, lineage of thought that goes back to a lot of suspicion on what the national project really is, who's out to get us, and why these ethnic identities are actually not allowing us to achieve it. But I think, I think 
more and more. Um, I wonder if people who have these fears have ever seen people from Kadak and what's a contiguous district to Kadak, uh, where the Khataks are from? Uh, they're from a lot of places, actually. Right, but yeah. principally it's Kadak and the other one. Um, I can't recall. Banu and Lucky Marwat yeah. and D.I. Khan. These yeah. are, I think they're all next door to each yeah. other. I wonder if people have seen M&As from these districts argue against each other for funds, for federal or provincial funds. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that this, this concept of this monolithic Pakhtunkhwa, yeah. right? That's so scary. Oh, what are they going to do? They're going to get together with Zahir Shah and they're going to, yeah. you know, they're going to undermine the national project. Like, I think it's a ridiculous, like, it's just... I, here's, here's the thing, and I, I don't know how true this might be, but I think the national project has been undermined by one manifestation of it, which is this increasing religiosity that went towards a sort of extremist mindset and also, you know, these little, um, not little, but uh, sort of major um, sort of uh, militant groups and all that. And I'm wondering is that if one of the things that where the national project is being reconsidered in one mind is that one of its fundamental subsets in the way that it was encouraged and subsequently it's manifested itself has been so horrific that, you know, it's actually become an existential threat to the country. We've gotten some control over it. And whether this whole thing about the provinces and, you know, provincial identities might actually benefit uh, in the long run that, okay, this is a lesser, uh, you know, I don't, I don't of know. suspicion. No, I don't. You see, I, I think today we're just going to disagree on a bunch of stuff yeah. because <laughs> I, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think, <laughs> what are you suggesting, like a Barelvi province? You know, what, how are we going to... Oh, no, no, I'm just speaking about the main, the main ethnic groups, not necessarily religious, but I'm talking about is that whereas the national project was conceived as being like, you know, a superset of you know, a pan-Islamic... We're, all Muslim, and, yeah, yeah. we're right? all Muslim and we're Muslim-Muslim and, yeah. and we're Muslim. No, no, we're Muslim squared, right? Yeah. And we're going to be something greater. And I think that the way that it's sort of played out, I think that is an opportunity for, uh, you know, sort of the more previously suspicious or people that you've had some suspicions. I agree it doesn't work in Balochistan yet. I think we're far away ahead, uh, far, far away before the military and, you know, this establishment can actually undo what it's done in Balochistan but and I, I, bring the, it back. I also have this argument, you know, sorry, I'm just going to just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, go I, ahead. No, yeah. I feel bad about it because, we, you know, we're meeting after a few days and yeah. I'm really happy to see you. Yeah. <laughs> but you keep saying this stuff. You keep saying I mean... The whole problem is that the military has been the one that's been making decisions in places like Balochistan. Yeah. Right? So I, I don't think we need the military to change their mindset. I think we need a civilian regime in this country, uh, both at the national and at the sub-national level, so provincial and beyond, that has the operational legitimacy. No, I agree, but that's predicated on the military ceding some space. It's also predicated on the belief that the military will say, okay, these guys can do their job here, which they always could have done, but it was a sort of mindset that's allowed them to go in and basically bungle it up for this long period. We're getting far away from sort like of... Like Kadri has nothing to do with any yeah, of these exactly. things. Yeah. This, is, this is far away, but I guess, it, well, it all loops back in. I mean, my final thing on this is Nawaz Sharif in the late 1990s in, in front of a dharna, does he exercise this degree of restraint and self-control as he did during the dharna? Yes or no? No. Absolutely not, yeah. right? If the dharna had at least some degree of tacit support from elements associated with the military establishment, yeah. then what I would argue is that the military didn't cede any space in 2014 and 2015. Yeah that the space that has been acquired by the civilian government has been acquired through a degree of the demonstration of governance competence. And in this instance, particularly with the, with the case of Dharna, it literally is not shooting protesters en masse. Yeah. Notwithstanding the, the criminal sort of breakdown in Marbletown yeah. uh, in the summer of 2014, 
It was the summer of 2014. Notwithstanding that, the the fact that the dharna didn't end up in bloodshed, that it didn't topple the government, that a lot of that had to do with restraint. Yeah. That was a demonstration of political maturity by the sitting government. I agree. What I'm saying is, but I, but I also you think know this this lament that the military has to cede space is informed by kind of a lack of agency at the at the at the level of the politicians that somehow, yeah. you know, elected Democrats, elected civilians are so powerless that the only way that you know we'll see a reorientation of our national sort of power base is through the military deciding that it is so. I just don't think that. I, no, I no, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think to suggest that would be uh, entirely unfair and it takes away from um, what is, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that the civilians have been able to do and actually, you know, increase the amount of space that they've had. And I don't think it's either or. It's a mix sure, of both, of right? It's, it's, it always uh, is. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a mix of both. And I also think that if we look at the Dana, I do agree that... The fact that you know making sure that an itchy trigger figure was not exercised, which could have very well been done much earlier and has been done in other areas, but I also think that um, this particular operation of the Dharna, I think it also exposed to um, you know all the people behind it, is that some of the conditions surrounding executing this kind of um, conspiracy or this kind of exercise has changed. It's it's not going to be as easy. It's not going to be as organic as people presume. Because even now, I mean, if you look, you've got Mustafa Kamal coming back in. And it's interesting, right? Like, you know, people are saying, what does this mean? And a lot of people are saying, it means nothing, right? Because they're so used to this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just think that we are in a sort of new phase where I, I still believe that, you know, people who are engineering these things are still a bit more powerful, but I agree with you that uh, one is the fundamental subset of conditions have changed. The country's probably become slightly more open, a little more cognizant of, you know, things like this. And, and yeah, you're right. Uh, one of the great things we have is that we have some evidence now of competence in governance, which is useful, which is, I think, one of the biggest things that... Um, but again, you know, I, I also think that in Pakistan, the degree to which the forces against democracy can sometimes execute large-scale misinformation or sullying someone, I think that is uh, still a very strong competence that they have. And it's something that one should fear. Um, because it becomes problematic. Because I, I, I do find that at least it sounds on the surface of it that people are willing to quickly jump ship from democracy and they want a strong man in no matter how soon they've had a, just in the recent past they've had a strong man and it didn't work i think we might be paying too much attention to too many fake twitter accounts uh, i mean you know the discourse is a lot more robust and resilient than what it seems like from the trend sort of list of what's trending in this country. Oh, the trend list is just a Narabazi list. It, it's, that's a very small... And it's also very inorganic. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. A, I agree. You know, there's I a agree. bunch of bright kids who, instead of writing code yeah. to... No, 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 they're the, way, they don't have the competence to write code. I think you're giving way too much credit. It's I'm, Instead of kids who have, like a, who have the time to set up 78 fake accounts and then, you know, use TweetDeck to... Yeah, but do you it. don't think that they could be contributing to national productivity in a different role? I mean, Oh, yeah, really, yeah, absolutely. So that's all I'm saying. I'm saying that if they had spent, like, if the state... Here's, here's the question. I'm just saying is that the trend-making uh, action in Pakistan on Twitter is not one that is rooted in any kind of competence in IT or tech, but it's one that's been uh, actually used through brute force methods, which is setting up huge numbers of yeah. accounts, which is just, you know, uh, one And I, I think this other. is the fundamental distinction between the Pakistani establishment and all the other establishments. I mean, people often uh, talk about, you know, our agencies as if there's some unique evil that is sort of, you know, that, that emanates from them. And I think lots of mistakes have been made. But I think one of the things that I find endlessly fascinating is the consistency <laughs> with which with, is just like... It's like Imran is standing there, the Kaptan, right? Not the political guy, yeah. but the one that we, the, 
that you and I love. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he's got the ball in his hand, and Imran is. I don't know who Imran is in this in this allegory, right? Yeah. But uh, but he's handing the ball to Vakad, and he's saying, "Just go out there, <laughs> blow them away, right?" <laughs> and so the only thing in every facet of national public life yeah. that you see the establishment do is yeah. just. Bowling for wickets and yeah. not bowling like within the stumps for wickets, like yeah. trying to bowl over the batsman with a bouncer so that yeah. he breaks his jaw yeah. and the guy falls onto the wickets and it's hit wicket and then they can sell. Like yeah. that's the only instrument of execution, just blunt force. So yeah. if it's Twitter, we'll just flood, yeah. we'll flood people with 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 this stuff. If yeah. it's if it's other things, you know, I mean, it's I mean, other things. I mean, but, this, but, but it's always about blunt force. And the only thing I was thinking in this allegory is that the umpire then walks up to Wakar and says, "Wakar, beta, seam pick karna cha." Yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, but anyhow, coming back, let's uh, let's uh, on a on a program dedicated 20, to Mumtaz 26 Kadri, minutes and 30 seconds in. Of, of, of which maybe <laughs> 72 <laughs> seconds were Mumtaz Kadri, right? And um, but anyhow, just coming back, I, I do think uh, I agree with a lot of. I mean, just following what people are saying and ideas that are interesting. I do think you know being gleeful over somebody's death is not necessarily a good thing. But I do celebrate. We mean not necessarily a good thing. I think we we really need to if we're going to be sort of honest we got to be honest. Yeah. It's not ever a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Mean, I find I it difficult. Uh, no, it's not it's not okay. That doesn't change the fact that there may be many of us who felt it, but I think we have to call what that feeling is for what it is. It's it's not graceful. It's not consistent with any set of values that are worth aspiring to Islamic or sort of, you know, whatever other labels you want to use for yeah. it, you know. So I think, no, I think celebrating death is just a, I mean, on that front, I really am with the with the left-left liberals, right? Yeah. Like, who, who are like, you know, I mean, we can't lose our humanity, but at the same time, we can't lose our appetite for a state that works and a state that does what states are supposed to do. Absolutely, I agree. So I think that's where sort of that's the point of divergence for me with that group. But I also think there's a larger thing, which is how many conversations have you had with somebody who's very, very upset about Mumtaz Gadri's hanging? Be honest. In the uh, last week. I've had it with about three, four people. You're a very curious man. Because yeah. I think that there's a lot of us who feel a certain way about the importance of the state exercising its writ the importance of people paying the price for crimes that they commit, and the importance of separating people's personal beliefs from their ability to take people's lives. I think those. Are, I think there's a lot of us that, that feel that, but I think that within that sort of larger group, uh, there's a relatively small subset that has access to and engages regularly with people who completely disagree. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, And I think that my sort of, what I'm interested in exploring is whether or not we can find the space to have more engagement because I don't think we've figured out what to do with the 100,000 people that, that showed up. Yeah. I mean, there were 100,000 people, right? Those are, those are citizens of this country and they're young predominantly. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to depress you, but what, how are we going to engage them in a, in a long-term conversation that helps them feel more ownership over this country and, and it feels less anger? Because a lot of this is fueled by just generic anger. But this is where I actually, I, I, I do agree, but I also agree with sort of um, those people who've had a very serious issue with Pakistan's strategy of embracing the death penalty because the argument is actually rooted in, forget the opposition intellectually and emotionally to the death penalty, but also that this is just a um, sort of, you know, it's whitewash. Yeah, well, one is fuel, but the real thing that it is is that it doesn't address your primary problem, which is your ineffective courts and justice system 
the fact that you know your rule of law is lacking seriously and that getting rid of these people is because you know you can't really jail them correctly you can't really isolate them from the networks that they have that they can even execute people uh, or they can even actually exert influence outside uh, where they've been held prisoner and again coming back to what you're saying is like what do you do with this huge number of people who believe it in a certain way and I also think that it's also rooted back again with one of the things that I did see in the um, you know sort of the Qadri murder and you know um, Salman Tassi's uh, uh, assassination was that for a lot of the people that I did discuss who were like really in favor and they had this knee-jerk reaction and when you sort of probe into it I found that there was also a lot of class anger and that class anger is that you know because I had a very interesting thing where I, I knew this one uh, Christian colleague who was happy on it and I was like so what's your deal why are you happy and then you know when I spoke to him about it it was just that he was just angry at rich people he was angry at the political class and for him this was the small guy doing and obviously but the, the thing that they didn't realize is the root of it was that here is somebody who was exceedingly powerful he did something that had no political benefit to him and he reached out to the most powerless in society which is you know a woman who was in all likelihood railroaded and you know put in and to, to the degree that we can't even look at her case with a degree of accuracy I don't know you know what the resolution would be and it's so interesting to see that you know people who have a certain kind of class objection uh, willfully ignore the one element of where you know but I don't think they're willfully ignoring it I think that they're presuming she's guilty no yeah. no I think they're basing their decisions about how they feel on this on the information that they've been given Fussy the national discourse did not uh, the national discourse does not recognize Asia Bibi as a valid entity in this entire discussion yeah the national discourse saw Salman Tassir speaking on behalf of someone I mean I would use the language if I didn't find it offensive but the way that I understand like, what you're saying yeah the way that someone like Asi Bibi is referred to in yeah. our national sort of you know on the street like, yeah you know Main Street yeah is is is, is repulsive it's the n-word of Pakistan right yeah and, and well there's we have so many is one of our the diversity yeah. of our n-words is also something to, yeah. to consider and I think we need to have a more honest conversation about these things too but I think that the class angle works because of the filtered information that our national mass media has provided to the average consumer of our national mass media this is not uh, when you say willfully ignore yeah uh, that's uh, you know your charger helping my phone there you can just put it on silent I was really freaked out by the uh, the soundtrack given to your point yeah that was very um, inopportune well it was very African sort of bongo drums or whatever it was, it yeah. was great it was, uh, I enjoyed sort that. of the diversity I embrace on it everyday basis look we we haven't really come out openly because partly I'm self-conscious because I wrote about this in, in my column as well yeah I think we're gonna have to invest in a little bit of empathy I think we're gonna have to stand and have conversations that are very patient and very careful about how we frame our viewpoint but this is not about like I wonder how many times our conversations are about really listening to the other side and how much of them are really advocacy exercises you know I'll, I'll tell you one other thing that comes to mind and this may be uh, incredibly stupid insight but I've often wondered about the blasphemy law that one of the reasons that it's also jealously guarded in a sort of a more subconscious level is that it's the one area where power is filtered down to the most powerless you have a law you have a instrument that if you want to misuse you actually wield significant power you I mean and if you look at how it's been used for things like say property disputes or anything else like that 
I've often wondered about this because what also again if you look at it if what you're asking is that for a lot of um, people who may sort of endorse it is that you have to give it back to the impersonal state and it's going to be through you know a mechanism where evidence is given you know you might not get it done through and whatever and here right now even in the prosecution you don't even have to repeat the evidence you just have to say something happened so it, I'm just wondering whether that's a very minor but interesting point of how people look at this particular law and its application. <clears throat> it's an endlessly fascinating uh, topic, Fussy. I, I, I do think that some of our f friends who are maybe sort of what you might call conceptually ultra-liberal actually have a point. If you go back to the Lal Masjid and the original fracas that emerged, it was over there were a bunch of students from Jamia Hafsa who went out with sticks and basically challenged the operation of what they felt were social ills yeah. in a number of homes that were operating commercial... Uh, commercial um, Hot stone massages. Yeah, let's yeah. call it that. Yeah. And their argument, which had an enormous amount of play in your mainstream, yeah. was that this this social ill shouldn't exist and if the cops won't do something about it we will and so what's your problem if you look at the principal justification that i've had from my sort of barelvi friends i keep referring to that specific sect not out of any sort of animus but just because that's kind of the the driving force now of course every sect i mean Shia, Sunni, Barelvi, Deobandi, left, right, like everybody within sort of that banner, mm. uh, kind of what we might generally call the right wing, has kind of coalesced around this issue. And that in, its, in and of itself is a very interesting evolution of how the right wing operates in this country and how little space it actually has that it needs to coalesce around, around things like this, which may be a sign of sort of some, some marginal improvements in our national discourse. But if you talk to people that might have attended the funeral and that are really upset about the way in which many so-called liberals have have mocked or maybe uh, expressed glee or, or, or satisfaction at this execution. It's the same argument as the original Jamia Hafsa argument. Here's a guy, he committed blasphemy. The state wouldn't do anything because he was the state. So here's a poor guy who rose up and had the courage of his convictions and did this because the state wouldn't. It's exactly the same argument. It's, it's a fascinating sort of... Uh, I, I'll tell channel. you one thing. It's interesting, though, from my perspective, where I have actually been, um, maybe not showing glee, but I, you know, in, with some of the people I've been arguing, which, which I haven't understood, right? So I keep asking them, is that you've done this, um, you've done this, um, you know, sort of hero-building project. You've got this guy, he's come up, he's taken off all the forces that will, and he was extremely clear-headed about what he wanted and what he was avenging. And what I didn't understand is that, obviously, even in the expression of mourning at the funeral and in a number of other cases, is what they didn't recognize is that there's somebody who filed multiple appeals, he filed a mercy petition. And I was like, so why is it that you know this unblemished hero was seeking to avoid the justice that you know he meted out to someone else. Why didn't he have the temerity to face death in that particular fashion that you know most people would have been accustomed to an ideological hero? And I find that extremely interesting because I mean, one guy just told me like, any video evidence? I said like, no, you don't need a video evidence to see if you filed a mercy petition or whatever. You know, it's all there in papers. But um, the the point being is that. I also think that you know they were trying to so forcefully construct a hero narrative for this guy that you know all the blemishes that are attached to this, including blemishes on you know like whether you sign up, you take money for a certain job, and your job is protecting someone, and then at their vulnerable moment you kill them. Yeah, but I think Fasi, I think a lot of this misses the point, and this is my frustration with with myself, with, with all of us, you know, on perhaps on the on the side of sort of pro-state, pro-rule of law. Uh, let's call it that because that's most accurate. It doesn't assume any other biases. 
I think my frustration with us, with myself, and, and with what you just said, is that you're trying to argue within the frame of what isn't accepted to begin with. You know, the, the idea... But it also goes back to what you said. In the information filter that came down to these people, this is missing sets of information that needs to come out, that they need to at least conceive of. They might not agree with it today, but that evidence is there. And I think that, you know, I, I, I do see, like, so when you say people need to go out and, you know, engage more, but there's also a level at which engagement is possible and not possible, right? Yeah. There are certain people who are just not open to it and uh, they've got a very strong way of strong-arming how to limit your argument as well. But here, I think the key is also is that if we are actually saying that, you know, you have a whole set of people who maybe, uh, for lack of a better word or a very soft terminology, are misdirected or have misunderstood the situation, then, you know, sort of challenging and actually talking about missing sets of information is important. Yeah. No, I, I do think that, but you can only have that exchange of information once you're actually engaged in a conversation. I agree. So I think the larger point that I'm trying to make still stands. Yeah. We need to engage with each other. We have to find a way of having a non-mocking, non-sarcastic, non-snarky conversation with people whose viewpoint we find repulsive. And because the feeling is mutual. Yeah. The language that's used, you know, by some of the Beish Imams, you know, um, for those that weren't at the funeral. Yeah. Is, is, is pretty strong. So it's not, you know, and, and, and the counter uh, factual, of course, is available uh, on Facebook, uh, at least for me. You know, yeah. there's friends of mine who've used really incendiary language about members of people, you know, members of groups that are associated with the right wing. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, I do agree. I think we should wrap this one up. And what we've agreed is that we need to talk to each other more. And I think, I think... Uh, one of the key things, though, Wait, you and we talk like no, no, too much. All already. groups, we already talk too much. Yeah, <laughs> but I think people need to. Obviously, they need to talk to each other more. One of the problems with demonization is that it just it drives others, wedges. It yeah, 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 the wedge just keeps increasing. I do think I do think that you start off these conversations in a polite tone, but we also have to accept that they will get bitter conversations, and I think that's part of the way that you get progress over time. That where you've got certain taboo subjects. They open up like these huge wounds, but you know, a year or two down the line, you find that you know they become a base of more acceptable conversation. At least I've seen that as the Pakistani media has become, it's become both irresponsible but at the same time more encompassing a lot of viewpoints, at least in print online, which I found interesting that you know have come out. And um, here again, I I, I think. Uh, the one thing that we can agree on is, thank God the state has some writ left, that it's taking bold action. And I think even for maybe a minority of people who might have disagreed with what has happened, for them at least, they the one thing that everyone wants, and I think even in the last election, in future elections, this whole thing about rule of law, that you know we want to be beyond baradri, we want to be beyond this, that we have a certain sense of justice that comes in. I think... This portends well. I just hope it's not a flash in the pan. Well, I think it will be because I think that you know some of the arguments I've heard, some of them do have some buoyancy. Uh, Fussy, we we really should wrap up, but I mean I'll end on this sort of you know note of maybe representing a viewpoint that I, uh, in many ways, perhaps abhor and and certainly don't agree with in any way. But a lot of the you're being a devil was, advocate. I guess, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. astaghfirullah. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the you know one of the arguments that you've seen over and over again, and I've seen it on on social media and in person, is uh, you know you could only find Mumtaz Qadri. Like, what about Baldia Town? Yeah. You know, beyond a certain point, like okay, so we can abhor. What about Shabkadar the other day? Right. Exactly. Like, well, nobody no, asked that. No. no nobody. Know. Nobody <laughs> has come out. Like, yeah. I doubt their funerals would have had the same kind of. And there was so many more people. No, no, but I'm... So I, I, can I just quickly add one thing? I'm sorry, I know we're, uh, you were making a point. But one thing that really made me angry, Shabkadar made me incredibly angry. 
And it's also to the larger point that people believe that the Taliban are a Pakhtun phenomena. If you look at it, you know, this is something that was a bit far removed and whatever, and the victim immediately became the Pakhtun. And it just goes to the point is that for most people, I think even people uh, in Shabkadar, they'll articulate it immediately, is that this is the most anti-Pakhtun force there is, anti-cultural force there is, which is the Taliban. Anyhow, that's sort of a small segue, yes. No, it's just, I, I do think that, I was coming at this from the other point of view, Fasi, simply that when people ask the question about what about the Baldia town fire, you know, there's not a lot that liberals seem to be saying about that. Yeah, okay. okay, that I agree with. And I, I think that's a legitimate point that people are raising. Now, some of the points are ridiculous, right? Because, I mean, people drag in drone victims, and there's a whole range of sort of, basically, it anybody who's died. Yeah. yeah, there's a whole list of people who've died, and people yeah. say, well, all these people have died. You haven't prosecuted those killers, so why did you pro prosecute Muntaz Qadri? Now, there's a very cogent response to that. Yeah. But beyond the reasonable and cogent response that one, one offers, I think it's important for us to absorb at least some of the legitimacy of the counter Argument. Well, I actually agree with you here because the thing that you're saying about the Baldia town fire especially is that I do think that because of, say, a certain uh, predilection for how liberal thought addresses um, extremism and certain mindsets in this country, it's, it does make the mistake of ignoring delivery, of ignoring what are essentially, say, secular crimes or political crimes which are invested, and that includes corruption. But that's partly because the, but the, because the discourse on ex violent extremism has been shaped not organically. I, I just, you know, and I myself am both a victim and a perpetrator of this kind of inorganic discourse, right? I mean, if you, if you and I are regularly engaged in talking to people, let's say in London or in Washington DC or in New Delhi, we have to adopt a universality in terms of how we look at the, the challenge of violent extremism. Yes. And that's legitimate. But I think that what that does to the domestic discourse is that it creates this kind of single line item liberalism, yeah. which is a real liability for the project of, of Jinnah's Pakistan. Because you can't have Jinnah's Pakistan that hinges itself specifically on countering violent extremism or on pushing back against radical right-wing ideology. No, I agree with that, you, absolutely. You have to have a project yeah. that is inclusive, that is understanding, that embraces the little guy. If the, look, if the little and guy is out there... And one would also argue to a small degree that what's been made possible recently is also on the back of delivery. What I'm saying here is that it's not just about, you know, sort of the ideological moorings of what's left and what's right, but it's also on the basis of people actually also care about, you know, do I have water in the taps? Do I have access to justice or, you know, hygiene and things like that? Yeah, but and you know what the cynics would say? The cynics would say, well, it's not that Nawaz Sharif is, is making things work. It's that he's Punjabi and that's why there's more tolerance. This is a classical sort of response. You would hear this in Sindh, you would hear it in KP, you would hear it in Balochistan, right? Well, I Frankly, mean, you'd hear it even in the Punjab. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean... And there may even be uh, certain elements of truth to that, but by and large, I think we've seen that you know things are making a turn for the better. But going back to your point is that that single line item, which tends to, in some ways, um, you know, it, it obscures. It, the, it obscures the, exactly. It, it obscures the glory of what a liberal Pakistan would actually look like, yeah. and makes it look like liberal Pakistan is out to get religious people. Yeah. And as long as you are having that comms problem, as long as the perception of what it means to be liberal is is that, is that this is about the de-Islamization of, of Pakistan, that this is about an anti-Islam, anti-religion sort of a, a narrative, you are completely barking up a tree that, that has nothing it's, at the end. It, it's, like it's just, it's a completely failed project. It's, it's also interesting is I think part of it has to do with the fact that the word liberal is so widely encompassing in Pakistan of so many different views, motivations. Um, the idea that it is a mindset that allows you to veil your face and keep it unveiled at the same time is something that obviously hasn't gone over well, to the, the idea, right. The idea that what it really ultimately is about is that the children of every single Pakistani that lives today should have 
an equal opportunity to have a better life. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't put it in those words. I, I would say the ability to choose what they want for themselves and the ability to have the space in society to be whether on the left or the right without each impinging on the other. Which so, is is the there an, so is there, analytically, is there a problem of the overprivileging of either the political or the economic when we use the word liberal? Because I think a lot of Pakistani liberals overprivilege the politics of, of liberal, the, 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 the liberty aspect of liberal as opposed to the, uh, the space and the opportunity to be all that one can be aspect of it, which is which is invested more in economics than it is, I think, in, in politics. Yeah. I, I'm not saying it's one or the other. I'm saying which, which way does the needle bend more yeah. when, when, when you think about it? Uh, well, obviously both influence one another greatly, yeah. right? Like the fact that if you do have a degree of economic growth and economic justice, your ability to negotiate space increases because otherwise you'd be on the margins, you'd be underprivileged, you'd have a whole new set of problems that you wouldn't be able to consider certain political freedoms with the same degree of liberty that you would You know my other fear here, and I think this is a great note for us to at least start to think about wrapping up uh, you know, yeah. this conversation, is that these terms are academic terms. Well, I, I have a term. Today's liberal in Pakistan, in my belief, is one who believes nobody should be killed. Uh, for anything that they believe or do, it should just go through, you know, the state. I, I don't believe that anyone can take uh, justice in their own hands. And I, th I think right now we've been constrained to a degree that maybe that is a working definition. Hey, yeah. we'll keep working on the working definition. All right, yes. Jazakallah uh, khair, this was a great... Uh, yeah, a great I really enjoyed this. Yeah. yeah, And I've, uh, I've missed you, bro. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> what everyone. the hell does okay mean? How about a, how about a <laughs> I missed you too? I love you, Ben. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. From Musharraf Zedi. And Fasi Zaka. Thank you so much. Khalafiz. Yeah.